Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you, and you are most certainly welcome to take that home with you and read it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. If you're a visitor, let me encourage you to make sure that you keep your Bible open during our time together. Uh, This morning's sermon, probably even more than most sermons, we're going to be doing a lot of uh, dot connecting in the text. We're going to be following Paul's logic in the text. And for all the members of Sixth Avenue, let's, let's go ahead and role model our hunger for the word, our submission to the word, our desire to see God and to hear from God in his word as we have it open in front of us. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we need so many things from you constantly. Whether we realize it or not, every day we are in need of 10,000 different things from your hand. But what we need most from you right now is for the words of your son, Jesus Christ, to make their way into our hearts and to change us from the inside out. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the words of your Son, Jesus, to our hearts and that he will rub them deep down into us, that that they will change us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the face of our God. Lord, help our hearts to be hungry to hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Buddhist philosophy says that life and death are one and the same. One teacher, Daisaku Ikeda, says it like this. Each individual life can be likened to a wave in the ocean. When a wave rises from the ocean, that is life. And when it merges back into the ocean... That is death. And this process continues eternally without beginning or end. I find that to be a beautiful, compelling, artistic illustration of something that is completely false. In contrast, the author of Hebrews, with all of the poetic elegance of a tree stump, writes these words. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The Buddha and the Christ do not agree. And yet, there is a sense in which for the Christian, life and death are the same. I want to show you what I mean from this morning's text Look at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. We'll read down to verse 26. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ." And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. I want us to start off by making a note of something in our Bibles. So if you'd like to mark up your Bibles, if you want to like pass on 
the legacy Bible to your children with all the notes of all the things that the Lord has ever shown you, this is a good time to mark it up. Look down at verse 20. Go back to verse 20. I want you to circle the word hope and the words eager expectation. They're right next to each other. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope. So circle or underline or highlight. If you have an electronic Bible, you can do that there, I think, as well. And then I want you to draw a line connecting those two, hope and eager expectation. And then I want you to write the word, if you can, in the margins or there over the line directly, the word passion. Write the word passion. I want you to, if, even if you don't write it, to, to, to see this, because taken together, hope and eager expectations, they show us what Paul's great passion in life and ministry is. This is what he hopes for. This is what he longs for. This is what he not just expects, but eagerly expects. That is to say, this is what he wants more than anything. So what is it? What is his great passion? Okay, now go down to the second half of verse 20. And underline, or circle, or highlight, or whatever, the word honored. Now, it, it's, it's the word honored in the ESV. If you're reading the NIV, it might be exalted. If you're reading another translation, the word might be magnified. That's fine. They're all just trying to get at, with the right English word, the same underlying idea, which is to glorify, to glorify, to honor, to magnify, to exalt. Now, Go over and underline or circle or highlight the words life and death in verse 20. And then somehow connect them all. In my Bible, it's just a bunch of lines making a bunch of zigzags. But I wanted to annotate to make sure that I saw hope, eager expectation, honor, life, and death. It's, they're all connected. Now, here's what I want you to see from all of that. The great passion of Paul's life is to honor Christ in his body, either as he lives in his body or as he dies in his body. So in this way, Paul and all Christians view life and death as the same thing. If we live, we live for the glory of Christ. And if we die, we die for the glory of Christ. So for the rest of our time together, I want us to consider exactly how Christ is honored, glorified, exalted in our life and in our death. So point number one for you this morning, life. Point number one is life. You'll see in verse 21, one of the most famous phrases in all of scripture, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think we have a pretty decent idea of what it means that it is gain to die, but we're still going to dig into that later. But this part of living, to live is Christ, that, that's not so easy for us to comprehend. We have trouble wrapping our minds around that. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what it means first, and then I'm going to try to show you my, my work in the text, okay? I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'm going to show you the answer from the Bible. And by the way, if you listen to people who preach and teach the Bible, if you watch sermons, podcasts, Bible studies that you watch on YouTube, and they don't do this, you're paying attention to the wrong people. What matters most for your soul this morning is not that you hear my opinion or the opinion of any pastor or preacher, but that God speaks to you directly from his word. And if a teaching can't show you the work from the text, it's a teaching that you should probably stay away from. To live as Christ, and if you're a note taker, here it is, means to aim the entirety of your life, right, Pretend that your body is like your life. You're aiming all of your life at one goal. Fruitful labor 
that edifies the church, that is, it builds up the church and glorifies Jesus. To aim the entirety of your life at one goal, fruitful labor that builds up the church and glorifies Jesus. Now, let me show you where I'm getting that from. In this morning's text, Paul says that he has two paths before him, the path of life and the path of death. So the question is, how will Christ be honored in Paul's body if he continues to live? So look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So for Paul, a life lived to the honor and glory of Christ is a life lived pursuing fruitful labor, right? He says, if I stay here, this is what matters, that my, that my labor is fruitful. So how does this apply to you? Christ will be honored in Paul's living as long as his, his whole life is aimed at gospel fruit, which means that Christ will be honored in your living as long as your life is aimed at above all else, and that above all else is on purpose. As long as your life is aimed at above all else, gospel fruit. That means everything else is way down the list of your priorities. Number one, gospel fruit. Number two, indent, 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 right? All the way, as, as far away as it can. Number two, way down the list. Number one, gospel fruit. Your whole life, every area of your life. Now listen, you may be thinking, well, Sean, that's easy for you to say you're a pastor. You kind of get paid to read the Bible and think about Christian things and and ministry is your full-time gig, how do you expect me to fulfill this, like, Godward vision of a life well-lived? Do I need to sell everything I own? Do I need to go be a monk in a monastery? No. Emphatically, definitely, no. Here's what I want you to see. Whether you are an apostle or a pastor or an insurance salesman or a shoeshine, Not only can your whole life be aimed at an increase in gospel fruit, but your whole life must be aimed at an increase in gospel fruit. So let me just give you some examples. Let me show you what I'm talking about in real time. Example number one, parenting. I know everyone won't be parents, but the most normal thing is that people get married and have children. Let's take moms. Your main aim as a mother is to raise your children to know and love Jesus. That's the main aim of your life as a mom, right? So think about everything else that is competing with that main aim. Academic excellence, personal safety, respectability, sports performance. I'm not saying that those things aren't important at all. Of course they are. But what I want you to see is that you can raise perfectly well-adjusted, socially adept, academically attuned, pathologically successful, financially well-off children, and still completely fail as a parent. Because you have produced no gospel fruit. On the other hand, you can do what I'm pretty sure I'm doing right now. Raised totally average, socially awkward, not particularly exceptional children. You've met them. (laughs) But you can aim all of your parenting at making sure they love Jesus. Dad, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be good at the piano. Okay, but how's your relationship with Jesus? I feel like I'm not the smartest kid in the class. Who cares? It's not going to matter in heaven. How are you doing with Jesus? Let's take another example. Think about the workforce. Uh, Let's say that you are a project manager because apparently everyone that I meet in Huntsville is a project manager. (laughs) 
the main aim of your work as a project manager must be, I don't care what your boss says, you have a boss that's above your boss. Your main aim must be gospel fruit. What will matter most about your work on the last day is not your productivity or the profit you turned or how many future leaders you trained up, but how you leveraged your career for the glory of Christ. You can excel at your work. You can be the best in your industry and completely fail as a Christian in your career if your work is not done in faith. Now, you may be wondering, Sean, how exactly, like what exactly does this look like? How can I produce gospel fruit as a project manager? That's a good question. Let me show you at least four ways. Number one, you can walk in integrity, right? In a world where everyone is just scheming and trying to lie and cheat and steal their way all the way to the top, you can follow Jesus and demonstrate that faithfulness to him matters more than your career. And maybe someday someone will ask you why it is and how it's possible for you to walk with that kind of integrity. And then you'll get to share the good news of the gospel with them. You can work with excellence. I have a friend who's a lawyer in Washington, D.C. He's one of the top 1,000 lawyers in the country, which apparently is very good. I didn't know that there were like 250,000 lawyers in this country. And he is just a rootin' tootin', Bible-thumpin', you know, gospel-preachin' evangelical, like conservative to the bone. And he works in like the midst of wolves and sharks and like in the most hostile environment. And I say, brother, how are you able to post the stuff you do on Facebook, on Twitter, and to be as outspoken as you are about your faith? And he goes, I'm too good. And I think he's, I don't think he's being proud when he says that. I think he, he has worked for decades to be excellent such that his work allows him the freedom to follow Christ. Like he's so good. If someone would come and say, hey, you shouldn't be talking about Jesus. He'd be like, you're not better than me. I'm a better lawyer than you. I'm not saying you have to approach it like that, but number three, demonstrate Christian love, right? All the country songs are true. We are all looking for love. And there are so many people walking around this world who are so utterly deprived of love. Their heart is shrunken up and parched and dry as a desert. And they are hungry for love. And when they come into contact with you, you who have the love of Jesus Christ, they will come into contact with the love of God. And that may perhaps open a door for you to communicate the gospel to them. And then number four is just always evangelize. Just always be on the lookout for opportunities to share the gospel with people at work. That's just a mindset thing. You'd be surprised that once you when you adopt that mindset, you'd be surprised how often you actually have an opportunity to talk about really deep things of God with people. So let's, let's do one more example. Let's take uh, your hobby, a hobby. So we have family, career, hobby. How can we aim our hobbies at the glory of Jesus? I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Um, I work hard to be good at jujitsu, which is, I know, totally lame. Isn't everybody doing that? But I study, I, I watch tape, I drill, I do strength and conditioning. I've broken my bones and tendons and ligaments, and Doc will correct me later if I didn't get any of that right. And here's the thing, I've gotten pretty good at it. But my main aim when I walk into that jujitsu gym is not jujitsu excellence. Jiu-jitsu excellence is an aim that I have, but it's not my main aim. My main aim is gospel fruit. I pray before I go in. Sometimes I pray while I'm even training. I make it a point to get to know people outside of the gym. I offer to pay for their meal and so that I can take them out. And they're really just there because I'm buying them a burger, right? They're poor, you know, young jiu-jitsu guy. He, just, he needs more protein and he'll let me pay for it. Little does he know that I'm scheming. I'm plotting. He wants to talk about jujitsu. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you read this book? 
Raise your hand if you are in this room from the jujitsu gym. Yeah. And there's a couple people who aren't here. Jim, raise your hand higher with pride. <laughs> Way high. There we go. Yes. My hope is that every person here who is a Christian at that gym will also adopt that mentality. Need to move on. Let's go deeper. Let's get more specific. We've said that we should point at gospel fruit, but we haven't really defined what gospel fruit is. So let's look down at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. Progress and joy. Paul says that his presence in the body will produce these two fruits, and it's really opposite sides of the same coin in the life of the Philippian Christians, progress and joy. Taken together, what these are pointing to is, is an increase in, in a loving, faithful relationship to Jesus, right? There's a deeper, more faithful, more joyful, more powerful, more useful relationship with Jesus that is born of this ministry, and Paul calls that fruit. So, I just want you to know, I just want to make one little point here, that this is exactly how we at Sixth Avenue, your elders, this is how we think about gospel fruit in the life of this church. Maybe you've been a member of another church where gospel fruit is thought of very differently. Um, maybe fruit is evaluated by baptism numbers. Uh, certainly, we value baptisms at Sixth Avenue. It's what you do in obedience to faith in Christ to demonstrate your, 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 your death to sin and your, want, your willingness to follow him forever. But so often, churches make baptisms a rah-rah event where we just try to get everyone excited and we try to get people to walk down the aisle. And, and don't you want to be baptized today? Please come on down if you do. Regardless of whether or not that person has truly repented of their sins, whether there's any evidence whatsoever that they're regenerate, no attempt in any way to connect that person to meaningful, accountable, loving church membership. So we don't, we don't put a high price tag on baptism numbers. We also don't put a high price tag on giving metrics. We certainly think that Christians who love the local church should support the local church, and we think that there's a problem in the health of the church if giving isn't happening. Having said that, some churches will base all of their gospel fruit metrics on how much money the church is bringing in. We don't think about program participation. We don't think about attendance numbers. I, I don't know how many people come in on a Sunday morning. I still, still don't know like how many people are here on a Sunday. This is a kind of a low attendance Sunday, which is kind of crazy. You should have seen us six years ago. Um, but when we think of gospel fruit in the life of this church, we think, are the members of Sixth Avenue progressing in their faith and are they growing in their joy in Jesus? Yes. Okay, so now let's look at one more thing in relation to gospel fruit. Let's see what this gospel fruit does. Look at verse 26. Paul says that he wants them to experience in verse 25 progress and joy in the faith. That's the fruit. Then verse 26, so that in me... You may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what Paul is saying here is that this growth in the gospel, you might call this edification. That's a fancy $2 Christian word, but it just means to build up, right? To edify, to build like an edifice. We would say that this gospel fruit, it, it builds up the church. And then it gives glory to God. And you see this in the ample cause language. So that in me you may have ample cause. That is a, a good cause, a, a good reason to glorify Jesus. So don't miss this. I know sometimes when we get away from illustrations and stories and anecdotes into like text work that sometimes we get lost in the logic. Stay with me. What Paul is saying here is that his main desire is for the glory of God. His love and concern for the church is 
at its core, a loving concern for the glory of God in the church and through the church. Paul loves the Philippians and he wants their best, but underneath, why does he want their best? He wants their best because they are at their best when they are happy in Jesus and glorifying Jesus. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. He loves them. But he loves them because Christ loves them. And Christ loves them because Christ loves the church because the church is the means by which glory is given to himself. So let me ask you this. Is your main aim in life the same as the Apostle Paul's? In all of life, is your main aim to glorify Jesus? I'm not saying you can't have other aims. I'm saying are all those other aims subservient to, working in conjunction with, supporting this main aim? Here's a little thought experiment that might help you do some heart work, okay? Let's say you're a carpenter, right? a really good carpenter, a master carpenter. And let's say you go and you build a house. And let's say that you build the perfect house. And after years and years of honing your craft, you finally build the perfect house. Now, here's the question. Would you, upon completion of that build... Be satisfied with the work of your hands if Christ were not glorified through that work. Right? That is, could you just be completely satisfied in a job well done for its own sake? If the answer is yes, you're an atheist. Functionally, anyways, you may not profess to be an atheist, but functionally, you are an atheist. Your satisfaction and your joy is ultimately not rooted in the eternal. It's not rooted in God. It's not rooted in the one who gave you the ability to use that gift in the first place, who providentially arranged your life in such a way that you could develop that skill. The main aim in building a house is glory to me. Look at the works of my hands. Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. But if you're a Christian, your main aim in everything, building a house, balancing a budget, starting a business, drafting a law, teaching your children, being a missionary, it doesn't matter. Your main aim in all things should always be the same. To somehow, some way, bring glory to Christ. So, to live as Christ means to aim the entirety of your life at one goal. Fruitful labor that edifies the church and glorifies God. Point number two, death. I think by this point we know what it means to honor Christ in our life. But what does it mean to honor Christ in our death? Look at verse 21 again. Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, so that, that's your answer. Verse 20 it is my great hope and eager expectation to honor Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. How do you honor Christ in your body? By death. Well, it's to live in such a way and, and to approach death in such a way as to believe that it is actually gain. Now, you can see this spun out a little bit further in verse 23. Look down with me at verse 23. Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two, that is, life and death. <clears throat> my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. How do you honor Christ in your dying? How can you view death as gain? It's by viewing 
your departure from this body to go be with Jesus as something that's far better than anything else you can experience in the flesh. Paul says that he's torn. He says that he has two good options. Two good options. Notice that. Good option number one, stay alive, keep doing fruitful gospel labor, and glorify Christ. Good option number two, depart and be with Jesus and die in such a way that glorifies Christ. So Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. And yet, Paul is emphatic that even though these are two good options before him, one of the good options is way better. That's what he says, right? He says, it is far better. So here's, here's your homework for this morning. You have to ask yourself, and you have to be honest with yourself. If you really believe that it is far better to be with Jesus. I mean, just think about it. What, think about what it's going to be like on that day to be freed from this body of death. To be given a new, resurrected and glorified body. To finally be free from the flesh and all of its decay and weakness. Isn't that far better? To be set free from lust and greed and pride and anger and malice and wrath and envy and every wicked thing that lives in our sinful hearts to finally and fully be free. I've had a lot of partial victories in this life. I'm talking about complete victory, not like I'm holding these five things down, hoping that they don't rear their ugly heads. And I think I'm good on these over here, but I'm torn trying to make sure that all these sin pots don't bubble over. I'm talking finally and fully free. Is that not far better? I'm so tired of this. Is it not better? Just to abandon this life with all of its trials and tribulations and temptations? Isn't it better? To finally and fully be with our Lord and Savior, our King? To enter into His glory, which we can't even begin to comprehend what that's going to be like. I'm trying to think of the closest thing during sermon prep this week. I was like, what is the closest thing to like entering into the glory of God? And there's nothing even close the love of my wife, the beauty of my children, the fellowship of the saints. Oh, they're, they're, they're kind of getting me there. But if you combine them all together, I still don't think that they're close. But one day, you're not going to have to do that thought experiment. You're going to be there. You're going to be basking in his beauty. You're going to be bathing in his splendor. You're going to enjoy his love. You're going to be singing his praises. And when you sing, it's going to sound good. And you're going to sing as loud as you possibly can, and you're not going to bust a vocal cord. You're not going to bust a gut. It's just going to be good. No missed notes. Are you going to tell me that that's not far better? <laughs> to finally hear the words of your master. Well done good and faithful servant. To finally stop hearing the whispers of Satan in your ear. Did God really say that? God, God didn't say that. God wouldn't say that. To finally just be done. To be done. To stop having to be like Jesus at the temptation event. I hear you, Satan, but here's what God word. I don't have to fight that battle anymore. It's going to be done. I'm just going to hear his voice. And it's going to be coming from him as I'm basking in his glory as his face shines upon me. Isn't that far better? To fully enter into the rest of God. To finally have the eternal Sabbath where sin and self will cease. So much better. What 
What is it that we love so much about this life? Tell me. What is it that we love so much about this life that we don't want to just leave it behind and go to be with Jesus? Why do we cling so desperately to this world, this body of death? What do we love about this? Is it the trauma? Is it the stress? Is it the anxiety? Is that what you're afraid to leave behind? Is it the painful memories, the constant temptations, the trials, the tribulations, the spiritual warfare? I'm trying to understand. Help me understand. Is that what we love about this life? Is it all the horrors of the fall, abuse, slavery, war, disease, famine, plague? Is that what you love so much about life on this planet, this, this world broken with sin? You might say something that uh, Amber, my wife, was talking about in a small group this week. Uh, you might say, Sean, that's not it. I'm, I'm happy to leave all the horrors and all the pain of this fallen world behind, but what about the good things? What about the delicious meals, the time with my family, the art, the nature, the whatever, my hobbies? I really, I hope that we understand that every good thing that we've experienced in the here and now is just a shadow of the good and perfect things that await for us, that await us in heaven. The birth of your children, your wedding day, the perfect vacation, which by the way, you've never had. <laughs> Big expectations for vacation, the reality never quite matches. That amazing meal, all of it, it's, it's a shadow. Everything you've ever experienced in the here and now has been merely groping towards the perfection of heaven. But it's not only not, never gotten there, it's never even gotten close. The only perfect thing that this world has ever known was Jesus Christ and we killed him. All these good things that we experience now, even in this fallen world, God gives them to us as a grace to point us to himself. Every almost perfect experience you've had in this life is meant by God to point you to the next life. Where everything is perfect. Because God is there. And by the way, there is a universe of difference between perfect and almost perfect. Sometimes I feel like we don't want to go to heaven because we're afraid we'll miss out on hamburgers and ice cream and baseball. As if any of those things or all of those things can compare to the joy that awaits us in Jesus. What if we can't see death as gain like we should for completely idolatrous reasons? Because we have begun to worship the gifts from the creator rather than the creator himself. We've worshipped creation rather than the author of creation. Reasons like, I don't want to go to heaven because if I do, I'll have to leave my family behind. Don't you get it? Your family is your heavenly family. That's what Jesus says, right? Who is my mother and who is my brother but he who obeys the commands of the Lord? You will be with your family when you leave this body if you are a Christian. You'll be with your father God. You'll be with your older brother Jesus. And you'll be with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you will be at the family dinner table rejoicing, eating and drinking to the glory of God forever. And ever and ever. Now listen, sometimes our heavenly family and our earthly family are the same family. And praise God when that happens. But if you're worried that that's not the case, that your earthly family that you love so much will not be with you in your heavenly family in eternity, well, you should really do something about that. I love them so much. Well, they're going to die and go to hell. So are you going to say something about that? 
Are you going to pray for them? Are you going to get awkward? Are you going to have that fight? What is it that we want here in this fallen world more than God? Paul says to depart and to be with Jesus is better than anything. It's better than anything. And that's what death does for us. Death takes us to Jesus. So what that must mean is, if we don't want to go be with Jesus, there is something or perhaps several things that we love more than Jesus here. Do you remember the parable of the rich man who wanted to follow Jesus? Jesus told him, go and sell all you own and you can be my disciple. Do you remember what what he said? He couldn't do it. He loved all the stuff here. So that means he wasn't ready to be with Jesus there. This is not like radical Christianity. You guys remember when David Platt came out with that book, Radical, 15 15 years ago? I, I saw what he was doing there. It was a good, like, marketing thing. And all the stuff he said in the book was really good and true. But it shouldn't be very radical at all to say the kinds of things he said in the book, which is really just the kinds of things that we're seeing in the text this morning. If you love anything more than Jesus, you are not ready to be with Jesus. That's not radical Christianity. That's Christianity 101. Now, I need you to know I'm not just making this up. I need you to know that Paul is not just making this up. Paul is just echoing what Jesus said. First, listen to Jesus in Matthew 22. In, excuse me. In Matthew 22, Jesus reiterates the great commandment. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, he spins this out in other places in his teaching. In Matthew 6, for example, he says this. No one can serve two masters. It's not possible. Now notice the language he uses here. He will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's another way that he says essentially the same thing, but instead of talking about money, he talks about family. Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, okay, some of you are like, listen, you've never met my mom. That's easy. I I can get with that. I love Jesus more than my dad. He's crazy. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you're sitting there thinking, Sean, I can't even imagine loving someone more than my child. Well, you just may not be a Christian. You just may not be a Christian. And I understand that's a really hard thing to say. and It's probably a really hard thing for you to hear, and it may sound unkind. But my aim is not to be unkind to you. My aim is to be very kind to you And to just help you understand what Jesus says because his words are kind and they're meant, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. When you hear me say that, your first reaction should not be, well, Sean, how dare you? It should be, no, wait a second. How is it possible that I love my children more than I love the God who gave me my children? If God really is who he says he is, then how can we love anyone or anything more than him? How can we treasure him less than we treasure his gifts? How can we care for creation more than the creator? How can we cling to the shadow more than the reality? If God is who he says he is, then we must 
love him more than anything else because he is more lovely than anything else. So I've got some bad news for you. The bad news is that left to your own devices, without God's help, you cannot do any of the things that Jesus says you absolutely must do in order to inherit eternal life. I can't do it. Because of my sin, I, my heart, without God's help, it will constantly set itself upon, it will turn all of my affections towards these lesser things. I'll be blinded to the truth and the beauty and the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. We are in as much trouble with God as I would be in trouble with my wife if I were to go home to her and say, babe, listen, um, I need you to know that I love you. I love you, right? But I love your shadow more than I love you. I love the gifts that you give me more than I love you. I really love the things that you can do for me more than I love you. But of course it's worse than that because God... Right? Like the creator of the universe, the infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful one. He's infinitely more worthy <coughs> than my wife. The offense that I commit against my wife is severe. But who is Amber DeMars compared to the God of Israel? So that's the bad news. Now here's the good news. God can give us a new heart. As a matter of fact, he has promised that for all who repent and turn from their sins, they will have a new heart. And they will have the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they can see and savor the all-satisfying, truly beautiful, powerfully glorious, wonderful, awesome God of the universe for exactly who he is. Now you may be thinking, Sean, what does this have to do with death? Well, if you come to see Jesus with eyes of true faith, death will mean nothing to you. Do you understand, like, the tremendous weight of that promise? Do you know that every single person lives their whole lives in fear of death? Oh, they may not admit it, but they do. And you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Death can not only not really mean anything negative to you, but conversely, it can, it can actually mean something positive to you. It can actually be an encouragement to your soul. And guys, this is, this is real. This is a gospel promise. You can look forward to death. Instead of spending your whole life being finicky over what you eat and uh, estate planning and, and oh, I want to make sure it doesn't hurt and, and just panicking over every last little detail of your life because you're so afraid to die, you can actually look forward to death. Death will no longer be your enemy. It'll be your friend. Last week we talked about the death <coughs> of Pastor Tim Keller and I just couldn't help but think about his last words in in my sermon prep this week, he said his final words to his family. He said, don't worry about me. Right? Don't you love that? Don't worry about me. Why would you worry? What about me dying as a Christian would make you worry? Don't worry about me. Death can only make me better. Amen. Death is a terror to the sinner but a servant to the saints. Death is not a pit into which we fall. It is the door through which we must walk in order to enter into our greatest desire, eternal life with Christ. I love the way one author says it. He says, because of the gospel, death is no longer an undertaker, but a gardener. He doesn't lay us in the grave. He merely plants us as a seed into the ground. So, how do we honor Christ in our death? By entering into it 
like it really is gain. When you face death like it really is a good thing, that glorifies Jesus. Everyone looks at the way you handle death and they go, why is that so different? Why is he running towards death rather than away from it? And then when they hear the answer, it's because Jesus, death gives me Jesus. What does that do? It makes Jesus look glorious. This has been the great hope of every martyr in the church. Loss of friends, family, freedom, money, property, respect, gain. Beaten, stoned, crucified, gain. Burned, buried alive, thrown to the animals, gain. Beheaded, boiled in oil, stabbed, shot, drowned. Gain. I have one final point for you, point number three. There's a connection between points one and two. What I haven't really addressed so far, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, you can... Talk to me about it maybe after the sermon or maybe we can talk about it in small groups this week. But Paul, Paul talks about life and death as if he has a choice in the matter, right? Some commentators think he's kind of using a rhetorical device. Uh, we can talk more about that. But what he does here, I think, is, is he, he's setting up this, this vision of choice. Do I stay here and serve the Philippians or do I, do I die and, and go to be with Jesus, which is better? And in verse 23, Paul says, what I want is to go be with Jesus. Then in verse 24, Paul says, nevertheless, it's necessary for me to stay in the flesh. Why? Because the church needs him. The church needs him. I mean, just think about what Paul is going through in his ministry. Think about everything that he's been through, right? Countless beatings, often near death. Lashed on five separate occasions, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked on three separate occasions, a night and day adrift at sea, frequent dangers on missionary journeys. And then he goes on to describe it in danger from rivers, from robbers, from Jews, from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, false brothers bring danger, so on and so forth. He says, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then the peace de resistance, he says, and apart from all that, there is this daily pressure on me, the anxiety for all of the churches. Paul sees heaven and he says, man, it is so close. I just want to go. I am so tired. To be with Jesus is so much better but I can't go. I just can't do it. I have to stay. Why? Because he can hear the bleating of the sheep. He hears the Philippians. He knows how much the church needs him in his ministry. Now here's your application. What we have here is a competition of desires. Paul has two good desires, and they are warring within him, right? I, I want to be skinny, and I want to eat Ben and Jerry's, right? The, the desires are warring within me. He, this is less carnal than that, right? I want to go be with Jesus and rest, and I, and I want the church to progress and to increase in joy. How does Paul break the gridlock of his desires, the answer is with love. Love decides the winner. Remember our pocket-sized definition of love, note-takers. Love is what we do when we actively seek the good of the other. Love is not something we feel. Love is not an affirmation of a person's lifestyle or lifestyle choices. Love is when we seek the good of the other. Not, not our misperception of their good, not their misperception of their good. What God says is good for another person, when we pursue that on behalf of them and with partnership with them, sometimes even against them, pursue their good, we are loving them, right? Your child doesn't want to be spanked. You know that they need to be spanked. You love them. 
In verse 25, Paul says, I choose the good of the church because I love the church. That's gospel love. And this is not Paul's idea. It's not like Paul is like this original thinker. He's not Plato or Aristotle or Socrates or Marcus Aurelius. He just got this from Jesus. Jesus was comfortable and happy in heaven with the Father, enjoying his glory and his fellowship. And by the way, he had been doing that for all of eternity. That is far better. But he heard the bleating of the sheep. He heard the agony cries of the people of God. He saw us dying in our sins, left helpless. He saw that we needed a shepherd. So he set aside his own comfort, his own wants, his own desires, and he came down to be with us. It was far better to be in heaven. It is far worse for him to be here. He came, he took on human flesh, he died a criminal's shameful death on the cross, and then he absorbed all of the wrath of God for sinners. Now Paul looks at that understanding of the gospel and he applies it to his life. He says, if Jesus does that, well then I guess that kind of, that kind of gives me my answer. What shall I choose? I guess I need to choose the path of love. And sometimes it is like that. Sometimes it is an I guess I will. I wanted to buy a motorcycle a couple years ago. I miss riding a motorcycle. Russell texted me like every day and said, if you get into an accident, what's going to happen to the church? I said, well, I guess I won't get a motorcycle. I know that seems petty, but there was a warring desire within me. There were warring desires within me, and I had to let love decide. So, here's your main application point. You must let love choose for you. For the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. For some of you, the rest of your life may be like this, right? For some of you, the rest of your life may be long. But in the end, though, it's all going to be like that, okay? But for the rest of your life, you are going to have good choices. Two good choices. And it's going to be hard to decide, what should I do? Your answer in that moment is, I must do what love demands of me. I must seek the good of the other. I must seek the edification, the building up of the church, and the glory of God therein. So as we close, I want you to consider what we've seen in God's word this morning. You know as well as I do that life is hard and death can be scary. But the gospel should change how we think about both. I was talking with a friend recently, and uh, he used a sports metaphor on me. Uh, I don't know much about sports, but I got this one. He said, you know, man, we're at halftime. We're at halftime. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, just think about it. How old are you? And I said, I'm 36, and he's like 40-something. The average life expectancy for males is 73 years old. According to the CDC, the average life expectancy of females is 79. So at 36, that means that my life is basically halfway over. Okay, Amber might get a few more years than me, but it's still basically the same thing. Her life is halfway over. Now, maybe you're sitting there doing some of the math in your head. And you're trying to decide if you're in halftime or if you're in the final seconds of the game. Some, some of you may be sitting there thinking, Psh, I'm not, I'm really just in the first minute of the first quarter. Some of us say we're in overtime. <laughs> but the thing is, you're going to blink, and before you know it, the clock's going to be done counting down. So here's my point. We must live like the end is near, because the end is near. And even if the Lord should tarry, the end is near. Your end is near. So we must honor Christ in our living and we must be prepared to honor Christ in our dying. Let's pray. Lord, your word has been held up before our eyes this morning as a mirror 
and it has caused us to see it's caused us to see ourselves as we truly are and we are not as strong or as powerful or as intelligent or as holy as we might have suspected so god we pray that you'll give us the grace to not only see ourselves more clearly but to be changed by you as we see you more clearly we pray this in jesus name amen